Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Hello, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And this is Democracy Works. Uh, Today, we're joined uh, by Peter Levine of Tufts University and one of the country's foremost experts on young people and civic engagement. And uh, Chris, I think this gives us a nice opportunity to kind of pull together some things that we've been talking about over uh, several recent podcasts. Yeah, we're um, we're lucky to to have uh, Peter... um, on the show, regardless, well, you've known for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I've known right? him for a long time. He's a, he's a terrific guy, and he's also um, like as you say. I mean, um, one of the a nationally recognized expert on uh, young people. He was one of the founding director of, of Circle, which is Center for Investigative Investigative Research on Civic Learning and edu- Engagement. Anyway, it's a long way to find this acronym, but the point is that uh, for for many years he's been uh, studying young people and how they engage civically and particularly how they vote. Yeah, so voting rates among among younger Americans has always been been uh, always been lower. And and actually, when you look at voting, when you look at voting turnout by age, you get a, a very clear curvilinear pattern. And that's to say, as you increase in age, people are more likely to vote up until a certain point where it just becomes kind right. of difficult to get out. Mobility and vote. issues. Yeah. And, you know, and as I often tell my students, there are implications to this. It's why politicians talk a lot more about Social Security than they do mm-hmm. about student mm-hmm. loans. Mm-hmm. Right. right. They know they know who's voting. Right. And the habit of not voting is just as powerful. Right. And right? that also that also is habit forming. And there's also a kind of, I think, developing sense among many younger uh, citizens in the United States that they want to be engaged in other kinds of ways right. than politics, right. which is just sort of, you know, when you look at the overall decline in trust mm-hmm. uh, that we see for American institutions generally, but particularly political institutions, it's not really something that's going to pull people in and right. say, I want to be want to be a part of this. So, you know, younger people voting is a concern. Uh, it is easier to mobilize them for presidential elections. Right. But you're right. Um And I don't blame students for this. I blame educators and the rest of us for this, that uh, that students have have been kind of encouraged to see their civic participation and their, um, you know, community and engagement as being something that doesn't have to engage politics at all. And so, right. you know, if they're doing service, if they're if they're volunteering, then then that's sufficient. And, you know, OK, but if you're not voting no one's going to pay attention to student loans as an issue. Um, and then if uh, and, and then if uh, uh, policymakers are not paying attention to student loans or other, then students will say, why should I vote? But, right. You know, there are other reasons for it, too. I mean, there is uh, there is often a sense you will get from them uh, that they don't feel ready to vote, that they don't feel like they know enough mm-hmm. to vote. Uh you know, here I, uh, I, I often uh, have a discussion with students about, you know, how much do you need to do, how much do you need to know to vote? Is it only the people that are really knowledgeable about all the issues that are entitled mm-hmm. to vote? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, and this, this is a role that political parties can play, right. which is that, you know, political parties can uh, be a cue right. for you. And mm-hmm. they, you, you, can, you, can, you can look at them and say, you know, uh, Republican Party has generally treated me well, or they've treated my my family's done well with them. Or and I generally agree with what they say. 
and maybe Peter will talk about this a little bit, but, but part of what I think is interesting that's going on now uh, with the way students here at State High and mm-hmm. who we've talked to in another podcast and uh, the uh, Parkland students that we all read about all the time is how they are using sort of the energy and community that's been built around these protests and everything else to orient people towards voter registration. And and that is often how voter registration can occur. Once you get people registered, then it's not very hard to get them out to vote. It's certainly easier, right? Yeah. No, and and so um, so you know we're asking Peter to just kind of reflect on on where we are right now, and uh, um, and it'll be interesting to hear him kind of talk about uh, these you know, these patterns that have been going on for many years, and and where they are now, and are we going to see things change? So. Uh, let's, uh, let's let's bring, bring in up. Jenna and, and Peter. Yep. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Wondering if you could maybe um, start off just by talking a little bit about um, how you define civic life and um, how that applies to your research. Um, yeah, it's, it's meant to be as broad as possible. We we actually renamed the college just a couple years ago. And so we had a chance to rethink it and decided that civic life um, was appropriately broad for a college that's, you know, full-scale college and, and permanent operation. Um, so it would include the civic activities of people, like voting and volunteering and um, protests and a lot of civic activities, but also the way that civic institutions are configured in society. So newspapers, governments, legislatures, they're part of civic life. Uh, so in back in 2013, uh, you you released a book um, titled "We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting For: The The Promise of Civic Renewal in in America." And I'm wondering, um, if looking back, you know, five years later, um, do you think that we've seen the the civic renewal that that I I assume anyway that you you talked about uh, in that that book? Um, actually, that's a good question, and I guess I, I have to say partly yes, partly no. I mean, in many ways, things are much worse, um, and I would have probably written a somewhat darker book, um, you know, if I had known what was going to happen. Um, this was written just as uh, Obama was being sworn in for his second um, term, and at the beginning of the Trump administration, I would mainly have a darker view, although I do think that there's an element of the... Um, of the resistance broadly defined to Trump that is kind of uh, has does have an air of civic renewal. So the story's not over yet. One of the kind of bright spots that, that we've seen um, recently is the, the students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I know there's been a lot written in, in the media about how you know, the, this Generation Z is kind of a, a new era, kind of new dawning of, of civic life, civic engagement, whatever whatever term you, you might use in, in the U.S. Um, curious as to, you know, what, what you make of that from, from where you sit in, in your perspective. Well, I'm excited about what the, the kids are doing. And I would, um, we can get back to this later, but I would attribute it partly to good uh, civic education, actually, which is occurring in their school, which is a, um, an angle on this that I'm not sure people realize and I do think they're also coming of age in a moment of political energy and mobilization, and they're doing a nice job. Among other things, they're um, you know, reaching out across uh, lines of difference. So it's been really fascinating and kind of exciting to see kids at a predominantly suburban school whose major worry might be the occasional mass shooter linking up with kids from urban schools who deal with sporadic but regular gun violence and 
So I think they're doing a nice job. So I'm very enthusiastic. I'm not sure I would say this is the beginning of Generation Z who have special, remarkable uh, characteristics. I do think it's the beginning of a really interesting moment in American political history in which young people may play an important role. How can people in in communities kind of have these discussions when you might have people on on opposing sides of the aisle, you know, is I guess, is there a common ground to be found and, and how might people kind of go about finding it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a really tough question. I wish I had the a good. I'm glad you asked it, but I'm not sure I have a satisfactory answer. I mean, one way in is to say that the um, the gun control debate is a good debate, but it's not going to actually solve the problem of violence in American society. Right. So if we do, in fact, impose restrictions on gun ownership greater than we have now, uh, banned assault weapons or whatever, we're not actually going to solve the problem. So in a way, um, we do need a broader conversation and the perspective. So I'm in favor of gun control as it as it happens. I happen to be in favor of gun control, but I don't think it's actually a a panacea. And so um, so I I guess uh, in the end, I think that the kids who are um, advocating for gun control have a right to do that. And it's not really their responsibility to make sure that they are part of a wonderful, bigger conversation. I mean, they're entitled to advocate. Sure. And I don't think everybody needs to be a deliberation specialist. And so their job is not to say, well, actually, there are pros and cons of gun control. And there are other things we need to do as well and stuff. They, they're injecting a pro-gun control message into the larger political debate, which is their job. And they're doing a good job of it. But I do think there's probably a role for other people to say, you know, that's a valid perspective. Right. Yeah. And kind of finding ways in or, you know, some type of like common ground, common understanding to open up that that kind of broader conversation. Part of it is is, uh, what Chris Beam would call humility. So, I mean, um, to the kids, I'm not asking the kids to be humble. I think they need to fight for what they're fighting for. But I think the good citizen is fairly humble, so doesn't think that you know, this solution is any particular policy because it isn't. Um, it never is. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it, it's, uh, problems are always more wicked and lasting and complex than that. And so being humble is good for the rest of us, even if we're, if we're not thrust into the crucible of history as activists, um, but we're just participating. We, we need to be humble. Right. And uh, on behalf of Chris, thank you for giving him an in to talk all about humility <laughs> in, in the wrap-up to, to this episode. Good. So the other thing um, kind of going on uh, right now is it's the, the 50th um, anniversary of, of the events of, of 1968, um, you know, Mar- um, Martin Luther King's assassination and everything else that happened in that year. Um, wondering what, um, you know, youth activists or, or young people who are trying to live active civic lives can learn from their, their predecessors 50 years ago in, in 1968. The most inspiring story is the story to me of the high points of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot to be learned from those moments, too, because, um, well, I'll just use one very familiar example. It's terrible civic education to teach kids that Rosa Parks was a tired working woman who one day couldn't take it anymore and just sat down in the whites-only section of the bus. It's good civic education to point out that she had been the uh, field secretary of the NAACP for a decade fighting and organizing, and that this was a planned um, political action for which she had been trained and had trained herself. Because by learning that, you learn something about how to operate today. Right, right. 
Yes, that's interesting thinking about, you know, how I think the the former version of that story is, is probably much more prevalent in, in schools today. So how do you kind of make sure mm-hmm. that 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 the more historically accurate version is actually what's what's getting across to, to kids? That's interesting. Um, it's a struggle. The, the other, I mean, I think there's at least three struggles with the teaching of civil rights history. One is this understanding that, you know, it's over, that basically we had this terrible system of de jure segregation and it was defeated, so it's part of history. Um, second is the idea that it was led by a very small number of charismatic leaders, incidentally all men, like the big five civil rights leaders, all a bunch of guys. And um, third, that um, it was spontaneous. And in reality, it's still going on. It had lots and lots of leaders, and it was very carefully strategized. Um, and I would want those points to be made. Sure. Um, and speaking of, of the, the idea of, of leaders, um, do you think that um, social movements today still need those kind of big leader figures to, to be successful? Or has we gone so far in the, the other direction with social media and, and things like that, that it really has become kind of a, a, a movement by crowdsource, if you will? Yeah, I mean it's a hard question, isn't it? Because on one hand, uh, we do we seem to be living in a time of increased celebrity politics. The president of the United States had no previous role except as a celebrity, so there's uh, lots of attention gets focused on people, on individuals. I mean, who are famous. On the other hand, we've got these social movements that are very allergic to to leadership and that um, both don't like to structure themselves. Uh, with strong leaders and also don't like to uphold people as leaders and tend to, to some extent to cut them down, I think. So, you know, extreme form of that would be Occupy, which really tried to produce no leaders at all. I think Black Lives Matter has some leaders, actually, and some of them have become pretty prominent. Um, but there's definitely a less less prominent role for leaders than there was in the civil rights movement in the mid-50s when or early 60s when they were the big five with a capital B and a capital F, and they were all nationally famous. Um so it feels like a shifting, rapidly shifting terrain where, on one hand, we pay more attention to celebrities. On the other hand, we have social movements that like to think of themselves as being less dependent on on leaders. I don't know. The other question I think that's that's out there right now, especially as it relates to the, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas kids, is will they vote, right? Or will, you know, how does this, all this energy translate into actually, you know, showing up to, to vote uh, at the polls? And so i um, curious as to, to what you, you think about that or what, what your, your research, um, how that might help in, inform that answer. I mean, I think they'll boost youth turnout, actually, but... Um that's because partly because the turnout is ter- going to be terrible otherwise. I mean, it was uh, just one in five, just 19% of young adults voted in the last midterm election. Terrible, terrible turnout. The worst in history and terrible by international comparison. So, But it means that if uh, a movement boosts the turnout by a few percent, um, it actually gets it up to, <laughs> to, to, to being better and, to, and maybe even to set a record because we've been mired in low levels for a long time. And it also makes a big difference to who wins. So the difference between the 2006 election when Democrats swept the House and the 2000 um, and the 2014 election when they lost badly um, comes down in part to just how many youth voted and the difference is just a few percent. And I think the Parkland kids have a potential to really boost by a few percent, partly because they are being, um, to an extraordinary extent, focused on voting. Uh, a lot of social movements in the last 20 years that I've seen that are youth-driven have been very ambivalent about voting because they've been very skeptical of the political system writ large and 
very much a feeling of being in a minority that would be defeated anyway. So going back a little bit, um, you mentioned that um, youth turnout um, in the the last election is the the lowest it it, it had ever been. Um, can you talk about some of the the factors that that maybe led to that? Um, I mean, it's, it's it wasn't a precipitous fall. It's mm-hmm. been pretty bad for a long, long time in in midterm elections. Um, you know, I think a lot of factors conspire. I think there's uh, there's not a very strong set of players and actors who are actually trying to get out the youth vote. Uh, campaigns tend to ignore the youth vote. Um, uh, in a, so in a presidential year, there's more attention to getting out uh, young voters because the big presidential campaigns have more resources. When you take that away, you see turnout drop by about 50%. Um, I think the media environment is very, very fractured, and it's possible to easily possible to go through a whole election cycle without not hearing anything about your local election, your congressional election, if you pick your media diet and have Facebook friends and so on who aren't involved. So I think compared to the days when there was a um, local newspaper dropped off at your front door that was your only way to get to the sports and the comics and that told you about the election, it's easier to avoid the election now. And young people are less um, involved in big institutions like unions and churches that once used to connect them to um, voting. So colleges are, are an exception. Colleges can connect them to voting, but colleges do a very mixed job of that. Um, and those those reasons conspire. Right. So do you see anything um, kind of coming up to replace those civic institutions that, that might have gotten people um, politically active earlier? For, um, for young people, I mean. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's this is how I see the state of play is that there's a tremendous, uh, wonderful variety of replacements, um, little nonprofits and social media uh, platforms and apps and um, social movements and all kinds of wonderful stuff. Um, none of them have the kind of, uh, to put it crudely, the business model that um, newspapers, unions, political parties, and churches had in the mid 20th century. They don't. They don't have a way of financing themselves and keeping themselves going and recruiting, um, decade after decade. So it's mostly a question of how how to take those pieces and turn them into something that has a a real market right. um, position. And um, I don't think we have that yet. The the things with the really big market position are are kind of neutral platforms. Like well, not neutral, but. Um, non-political platforms like like Facebook, mm-hmm. um, rather than organized efforts that really recruit people for a particular cause. Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a big opening to be had if somebody can figure out how to do that right in a yeah. way that kind of has that, that same level of reach. So we will close. Um, we are now uh, ending every episode of our podcast um, by asking our four mood of the nation poll questions. Um, so thinking specifically about American politics, what makes you angry? Um, oh, boy, so many things. And I only have 140 characters. No, it's I it's mean, uh, double that now, right? So you, you have oh, yeah. all the characters. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> uh, I mean, Donald Trump. Um, I guess... Um, uh, people, uh, um, powerful actors using um, tools and techniques to manipulate the public. Right. And uh, what makes you proud? Uh, people coming together to try to make the world better, uh, which they actually do in large numbers.
Great. And uh, what makes you worry? Um, the uh, vulnerability of the political system to sophisticated manipulation. And then finally, what makes you proud? Or no, sorry, what makes you hope? What? Let me ask that again. Finally, uh, what gives you hope? Um, the, the resilience of basic civic virtue that you see when you see young people stepping up to do what they should do. Wonderful. Well, Peter, thank you for, for a great conversation today. Thank you for joining us. Great questions. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, uh, we're, we're back. And um, as expected, uh, Peter Levine did not disappoint. He's a very smart guy and uh, knows um, a lot about these issues. So, um, so Michael, what, you know, it sounds to me like uh, Peter expects there to be um, a, a much higher turnout, but <laughs> it's high in, only in relationship to the fact that it, it's been so very low, Right. Right. I, I mean, voting turnout among the young will probably still be lower than older age groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of room for a lot of room for growth there anyway. Right. Right. Uh, and, you you, you know, there, there's just a lot of speculation these days uh, about what the 2018 election is going to look like. And the youth vote in particular is a lot of focus on the youth vote because of its importance to the Obama coalition. Right. And, uh, you know, I, maybe it's worth reflecting on the, the 20, 2008 election for a second where uh, young people really did turn out were you know, better than they had been. Uh, they uh, were, were clearly they were clearly motivated by, by Barack Obama right. and that campaign. Uh, and then they vanished. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I think I think that President Obama always feared this and knew that it could happen. Mm-hmm. And immediately after the election, he started to talk about, right. you know, change is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very difficult in the American political system to do things. It was not designed to be highly responsive right. to what people want. Right. So that has people thinking that ah, 2018 is going to be interesting. It's certainly possible. But I, I want to ask a, a kind of uncomfortable question. Mm-hmm. It doesn't does it not seem to you that part of the reason that young people uh, fell off this Obama coalition so quickly is because the the whole his whole campaign in 2008 kind of reflected this idea that um, we are the change we've been looking for, right? And so things are going to be different. And then they just didn't feel like they were enough different, right? And, and then the message became, this is what change looks like. Right, right. But mm-hmm. so, so, so that's the question that really is on the table for these folks in 2018, um, you know, because, you know, Going to a march makes you feel like, you know, change is going to happen, right? It's in the air. It's exciting. And then you kind of get down to the level of, um, you know, sitting in a in a in a campaign office at 10 o'clock going through yet another list of phone calls. That's not so exciting. So, yeah, I mean, um, the, the only other thing I wanted to mention was that it is quite obvious that in addition to being very good at organizing, the young people associated with the move, um, uh, the March for Our Lives, are completely focused on registering people to vote. And and um, and the one in State College that was like, you couldn't lo- you couldn't walk up that street without walking right by somebody who's saying, "Are you registered? Are you registered?" Yep. So so they know this, and and um, so I I just don't I don't I think it's it's at minimum um, more likely 
that this protest movement is going to make that transition. And if well, they, and they had nowhere to go but up. Nowhere to go but up. But if they do, and if they instill these habits that you're talking about um, in in this extremely large um, cohort of American citizens, it will change American politics. It will change American society. Well, so your your scenario is better than my <laughs> my nightmare scenario, but uh, yes. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. We talk about younger voters, like, you know, these high school kids who we know are going to college, but then, of course, there's also the lowest voting turnout is, I believe, among 18 to 24-year-olds who are in the workforce. Right, and that don't have a college education. Right, right. Mm-hmm. and so they're in the sorts of jobs, for mm-hmm. example, where, you know, taking an hour off to go work mm-hmm. comes directly out mm-hmm. of your paycheck, mm-hmm. uh, and where restricted voting hours or more difficult registration rules or lack of early voting are most like are likely to have the strongest effects. I, I think... This is a really good subject for another podcast because <laughs> I think we're coming down to the end for this one. Yeah, I'll bet the 2018 election comes up again at some point. Yeah, our, no, you know, I, I, I expect that. And uh, lots of uh, – it's a democracy. How can you not talk about exactly. elections? Exactly. And, yeah. and, and um, the, the question of, of voting, you know, is there, is there a question? Is there an issue that is more central to the condition of, a, of any democracy? Than voting. Than voting. Yeah. yeah. I just don't think so. So so it's entirely appropriate that we do that. Anyway, um, enough for, for today. So we're, we end up somewhere between um, young people are going to change the world. And to... they're going to be awfully depressed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not predicting yeah. that. I'm just saying. Yeah. It is, it, it is a p- possible outcome. It, it's a possible outcome. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's uh, um, one that we should all... Uh, look at and, c- and consider with, with uh, appropriate um, attention. Yeah. Yeah. This is Democracy Works. All right. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.